On the show today, I want to discuss younger Christians' lack of faith, thought crimes, and Kansas City's International House of Prayer minister, I guess, Mike Bickle. And I'm flying solo today, but I think we could still have a good show, so let's get to it. Welcome in. This is Religionless Christianity. I'm your host, Spencer, though I'm without my beautiful and wonderful co-host, my wife, Nikki. Still very glad that you're here with us today. If you're new, we always like to start off the show by reminding you that we are not religionless and this show is not religionless. Um, It's more so the world and especially this nation that is becoming increasingly secular, increasingly religionless, you could say. Um, So that, at least in part, is where the name of the show comes from. And we're going to try to do today, I say we, I'm probably going to say we a lot because I'm just used to talking about me and Nikki, but I am going to try to do today what I try to do every Saturday, and that's just find some stories from around the world, from around the country that I think have particular interest to Christians, and try to make sense of them from a biblical worldview and help me and you and other Christians who may stumble on here um, to live a life that's pleasing to Christ. That's the ultimate goal here. So with that being said, I do want to wish you all a Merry Christmas. What? Is it too soon? Too soon for Christmas? Uh, I don't know. I saw this post. Let me see if I can pull it up here. Here it is. Um, Just this week, Mariah Carey busted out of the ice, getting cracked out of the ice, getting ready for the holiday season. Um. It says, it's time. I guess this is Mariah Carey's post. It's time. Um, And then I saw another post, maybe it was on Facebook, and they said um, it was scientifically determined that those who put their trees up early are happier than those who don't. Um, And if we've learned anything over the last few years, you cannot argue with science. Um, So what's your guys' Christmas strategy? When does Christmas begin in your household? You know. We just ended Reformation Day, moved into November 1st, and uh, I saw another post, and it was like, November 1st, it was like, just so everyone's aware, it's officially Christmas season. (laughs) And uh, I don't think that's a bad idea. As wicked as our world's becoming, maybe we need more and more Christmas. Um, Let's just go Christmas from 4th of July on. But uh, when does your household or your family really kick off the Christmas season? We're kind of kicking off Christmas in our house mentally, like we're in the mental Christmas mindset. Uh, We haven't really gotten the decorations out yet. I've already been like fully engulfed in the pumpkin spice um, season. For me, that kind of starts in September and runs until, you know, April, basically. I do it all year long. I just like pumpkin spice. But um, we haven't gotten the decorations out. Tree isn't up yet, but I think we're close. So let me know in the comments, when do you guys think Christmas officially starts or should start. Um, We know Mariah Carey's ready. Uh, Her bank account, I'm sure, is ready. But uh, And also, if you wouldn't mind, what is your favorite Christmas song and your least favorite Christmas song? I would be interested to know what those are. Um, I know what my least favorite Christmas song is. It's whatever that Christmas song that Paul McCartney put out. Simply Having a Wonderful Christmas Time, dreadful song. Anywho, we'll move this along from Christmas. We'll get into some prayer requests here. 
So um, I would ask you guys to pray for Nikki. Uh, the reason she's not here today is because she had surgery this week, and the surgery went well. She's recovering just fine. Um, it was a minor surgery, nothing you know crazy, but she's recovering. She just didn't really want to, you know, during the week, put in the effort to kind of prepare herself for the show. And then, you know, up here, if, she's just not, you know, feeling a hundred percent. So that's why she bowed out this week. Um, but please pray for her that her recovery would go quickly and smoothly and she'd get back to her, her old self here pretty fast. My mom did come into town to help, you know, take care of the house and stuff, which was a blessing because this just happened to be like the busiest week that I've had in months at work. and. Um, then with Nikki and boy, it's just been kind of a whirlwind of a week. And because of that, we're also just as an FYI, we're not going to be recording the show next week. I'm going to take a, take a knee, if you will, take a breather next week. Cause I certainly need it after this week. Got super busy at work, but, um, just pray for Nikki. And then, uh, is a prayer request for those of you that have been here for a while, you know, that I had, um, been pondering, you know, swapping the way I do seminary. I actually, you know, um, decided to pull the trigger on that and applied for the mentor model of seminary, which keeps me in Albuquerque for the foreseeable future, maybe the rest of my life, we'll see, and sort of mentoring in the church. And that got approved this week. So um, that's a huge blessing. It's a bit scary. You know, how are we going to pay for the schooling and all that stuff now? But we just trust the Lord's going to take care of it. And now I'm, you know, sort of officially kind of mentoring in the church, being discipled um, in pastoral ministry. And, you know, when we first started this show, we used to always say every episode, we're not pastors, theologians, or apologists, or anything of that sort. Um, that may change in the near future. Um, today, I can still say that, but uh, hopefully that'll change in the near future, and I'm certainly blessed because of it. Love the church we're in. And they, and this is also another reason why I'm taking a week off next week. They asked me if I would um, present us or give a sermon at the next men's meeting. So I, you know, need to take some time away to prepare the sermon. And um, I'm excited about that. So just be, be in prayer for me, praise God with me, um, all those sorts of things. I'd be certainly grateful for. Now let's get our plugs out of the way here and then we'll get rolling talking about younger Christians. So you guys know that we're proud members of the Christian podcast community. It's a great place to go and find 50 to 60 good Christian podcasts talking about a whole host of issues from, the, from a Christian perspective. And the great thing is you subscribe to one feed and you get you know all of the shows in that one feed. So you can find them anywhere you listen to podcasts. We're on there and happy to be so. And then... Um, Oh, I saw this story, this new, I guess, report came out this week from it's uh, the International Christian Concern, and they have their persecutor of the year for 2023. They released this report, and I just wanted to highlight these two little paragraphs here. It says, uh, King, who I guess worked on the report, King cites several flashpoints this year including Pakistan, where a 5,000-strong mob of radical Muslims destroyed two dozen churches and hundreds of homes in the Christian enclave of Jarnwala. And in Nigeria, millions of Christians have suffered attacks from radical Muslims for the last 20 years, resulting in a death toll that may be as high as 1 million and the loss of 3.5 million farms. 
Across the globe, our brothers and sisters can be imprisoned or simply killed for identifying as followers of Jesus. They're legally prevented from telling others about their faith and anti-conversion and blasphemy laws are used to falsely charge Christians with crimes. So I bring that up to highlight cardinal contingency solutions. Um, You guys know that we love cardinal here and, you know, places like Jarnwala, Nigeria, they're dangerous, but they need the gospel. Um, But you don't have to go in just, you know, on a hope and a prayer with a Bible in your hand. Not that there's anything wrong with that, right? But you can go in more prepared and cardinal can get you prepared. You can Learn what sort of dangers you and your team might face, what sort of threats are in the area, how to handle those threats, what sort of assets are in the area, how to per, you know protect your team if things go sideways, and um, set yourself up for success in these areas that are a little more dangerous for Christians because they need the gospel, but we don't need to be, you know, I guess, just winging it when we go out there. We can be prepared, and Cardinal can get you prepared. So if you've got a church, a missionary team, if you're a missionary, just consider a phone call or an email to Cardinal and see what they can do for you. I don't think you'll be disappointed. And then lastly here, the selfish plug. If you want to help the show out, the easiest way to do that is just drop a like, um, subscribe, whatever platform you're on, if it's YouTube or Rumble, Facebook. And if your podcasting platform allows you to... um, follow, subscribe, please consider doing that. Leave a comment or a review if that's an option as well. And if you listen on Spotify, Spotify allows me to sort of put in questions or polls on each episode. And I try to add either a question or a poll to each episode and go in there. You can answer them. It's just another way for me to sort of connect with you guys and, you know, try to build a community because that's the goal here. You know, not just me talking to myself. I'm hoping to get some feedback. I understand I need some sharpening uh, for sure as we all do. So um, consider, you know, taking some time to go and, you know, do all those things to help the show out. I'd certainly be blessed by it. But all right, we haven't had the music in a while. We're going to kick the music off because we're talking about tithing. If anything needs horror music in America, it's Christian tithing. So, uh, I want to talk about this article here from the Christian Post. It says, half of pastors very concerned younger Christians not supporting church financially. And, you know, I think younger Christians sort of lack of faith is what this article kind of reads to me, and maybe even sort of like a false sense of grandeur. And I think that kind of gets shown in their unwillingness to support the local church financially. And this article says in here, while young adults have been found to be more generous with their time volunteering than older generations, just over half of pastors say they're very concerned that younger Christians don't support their local churches financially. Data for the study was gathered online through a survey of 2016 U.S. adults conducted from November 12th through the 19th, 2021, an additional online survey of 516 U.S. Protestant senior pastors was also conducted from March 25th to April 5th of 2022. The study shows that while millennials and Gen Z adults are great when it comes to giving their time to churches, some 51% of pastors say they're very concerned about them not financially supporting the church, while another 43% are somewhat concerned. 
So 94% of pastors are at least somewhat concerned that younger Christians are not supporting the local church. In this, like pretty much everything you look at when it comes to tithing or church giving, is a really bad trend. Um, you know, churches that can't receive the support they need to operate in like real support and really operating, not just like keeping the doors open kind of a thing, but like supporting pastors, supporting missionaries, programs, and all the sort of stuff that encompasses a church. If those churches can't receive that support, those will be churches that close down. And I'm not sure if you've looked outside recently. Uh, this is a nation that needs a lot more church involvement, not less. And um, I think this also kind of, to me at least, shows where the heart of Americans are today. You know, money is sort of the great savior and provider in this nation and not God. And I mean, you can see where that has led us to. So um, not a good spot to be in, not a good trend, though not a surprising trend, I would say. And it is interesting that the millennials and the Gen Z, they're willing to contribute their time, the article says, but they're not willing to contribute their money. So like, what does that say about their thought processes? And to me, I guess it kind of makes sense. You know, millennials are the me, me, me generation. Um, I didn't make that up. Time Magazine had an article back from 2013 calling them the me, me, me generation. And I think this article sums up pretty well. It says, here's the cold, hard data. The incidence of narcissistic personality disorder is nearly three times as high for people in their 20s, which those would be people in their 30s or potentially early 40s now, as for the generation that's now 65 or older, according to the National Institutes of Health, 58% more college students scored higher on a narcissism scale in 2009 than in 1982. Millennials got so many participation trophies growing up that a recent study showed that 40% believe they should be promoted every two years, regardless of performance. They are fame-obsessed. Three times as many middle school girls want to grow up to be personal assistants to a famous person as want to be a senator, according to a 2007 survey. Four times as many would pick the assistant job over CEO of a major corporation. They're so convinced of their own greatness that the National Study of Youth and Religion found the guiding morality of 60% of millennials in any situation is that they'll just be able to feel what's right. Their development is stunted. More people ages 18 to 29 live with their parents than with a spouse, according to the 2012 Clark University poll of emerging adults. And they're lazy. In 1992, the nonprofit Families and Work Institute reported that 80% of people under 23 wanted to one day have a job with greater responsibility. Ten years later, only 60% did. So, um, again, not a, uh, a very glowing description of the millennial generation. And that's, again, just the millennial generation. I would say the Gen Zers haven't exactly gotten any better. You know, and it makes sense, you know, going back to kind of the volunteering instead of giving money thing. Like, if 
you have a love of money, which we've talked about a lot on this show, Americans having a love of money, but you also have a desire for recognition because of your sort of narcissistic personality traits. You know, the thought of like, I want you to see that I'm doing something great or whatever, but I don't actually want you to touch what I love the most, which is money. That kind of makes sense, even in a church context, right? You know, hey, I'd love to volunteer. Look at me. I'm out here as a greeter. I'm, you know, doing all these things. Tell me how great I am. It's like, hey, do you want to help support the church financially? Whoa, slow down. Like, that's my money, right? And I worked hard for it. I don't know. That's just makes sense to me. And um, this article goes on in here and it says, uh, younger donors are far less given to focusing on their local area or even domestic work in general, at least regarding charitable giving among evangelicals. It appears to be true that younger generations have a much more global mindset than their parents or grandparents. Researchers added, this spells significant opportunity for international organizations, but also potential long-term concern for local domestic charities. And I think this is foolish. <laughs> I just have to say uh, this, you know, this idea of having a more global mindset than a local mindset, if you will. And not that giving internationally isn't at some level a good thing. And, you know, if you desire to do that, I think at some level that's good. But giving international or internationally at the expense of giving locally, I think is silly. Uh, but I, you know, I think it makes sense, especially for the millennial generation. We've kind of been programmed, you know, since back with Barack Obama, right? That we're citizens of the world. He kind of made that a thing. We're citizens of the world. We're global citizens now. You know, but that's just not true. <laughs> I mean, it's true in a sense that yes, we all live on the earth, but we're not citizens of the world. You know, if you live here in America, we're citizens of America. And like Nikki and I, we're citizens of New Mexico, and we're citizens of Albuquerque. That's where our citizenry lies. It doesn't lie on the global stage. Um, and I think we're really kidding ourselves if we think that we can um, forsake the local for the entire planet. You know, that we can just go, I don't know, I don't have to worry about saving Albuquerque. I'll just save the whole world. I think you're kind of kidding yourself there. You know, I think if you can't change and impact your own neighborhood or your own city or your own state, what would make you think that you can affect change on the entire earth? Um, again, I think it's just a bit foolish. But I think national identity as well is important, um, as is, you know, your local identity. I think having those identities is important. And I think it's biblical. You know, God told his people to care for and prosper in the places where he put them. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, 
and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. The city where the Lord has sent you. I mean, he he put you in a city for a reason. Um, God is sovereign over everything, even you and where you are. And you're there for a reason. So seek its welfare. You know, don't sacrifice your own local welfare for some grandiose idea of the entire earth's welfare. And then 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 says, First of all, then I, ur- I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. You know, we don't have necessarily kings and um, in that, but we do have authorities over over us in our you know local authorities, um, the city, the municipalities, all those different things, right? That God has placed us in, and we should be praying for and seeking to you know improve on these localities, these leaders, and all these sorts of things at a a local you know identity level. I think that's important. Um, and again, I think it's. Obviously, we've been talking about it. It's biblical. God gave us these identities, and he gave us nations, in a sense. So again, I think they're important and biblical. You know, God is the one who separated the entire earth into the national, if you will, back in Genesis 11, at the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, 5 through 8. It says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people. And they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. You might even say, you know, citizen of the world, is not something God looks kindly on. Um, he separated us for a reason, and you know he placed us where we are for a reason. So I think it's important. I think national identity, local identity, is important, and it shouldn't be forsook for some, like I said, grandiose idea of changing the whole world. You know, I think if you really want to have impact in the world, you want to change the world. You know, it may not sound grandiose, but you change yourself, and then once you've done that, you change your home. And then once you've done that, you change your neighborhood and then your city and then maybe even your state, right? Then, you know, once that stuff is all corrected, right, then you go and worry about the nation or the world. But I think, again, this is sort of like that false sense of grandeur that a lot of young people have. The article goes on down here and says young donors or younger donors have a much more international focus. They seek variety in their giving. They're less trusting, but do less planning or research. (laughs) Does that not pretty much sum up America, right? I don't trust anyone. Well, did you do any research? No. But I listened to a TED Talk and I formulated all my opinions off of that. Well, great. Um, The article also says, Gray Matter Research President Ron Sellers said many ministries and charities looking to, to survive in the current donor climate might need to provide more diversity in their programming. What leaders need to realize is that they can't effectively reach the 35-year-old donor with the same strategy they use to reach their 65-year-old donors, Seller said. 
organizations may need to provide more variety in programs and messaging to retain these donors. Um, you know, I think this idea sounds smart. I just don't think that it is. You know, I think this idea of diversity, diversity in all things, I don't think it's wise and I don't think it's productive. And I think this goes not just for the church, though it certainly applies to the church, but for our own personal lives as well. You know, but I think the problem is this internet age that we live in, this sort of TED Talk age, the podcast age, you know, we maybe think that we can just sort of learn everything and become good at many things and have our hands in every pot. But in reality, what that causes us to do is just become easily distracted. We give less than optimal effort in any direction and then ultimately become, you know, unproductive in just a lot of areas. We don't become highly productive in all these different areas. We just become generally unproductive in many areas, or we give less than optimal effort in a whole bunch of areas. You know, I think what we really need is more specialization. I think we need more singular focus and more determination. And again, I think this goes for, you know, probably businesses and people just the same or churches just the same. If you want to be successful in really any walk of life, I think the best and the most proven way to get there is dedication and perseverance. Like if you want to be a great doctor, you know, give yourself to the study of medicine and then be focused, be diligent. If you want to be a great basketball player, right? You want to be a great basketball player. Well, if you go and spend all your afternoons, you know, hitting golf balls at the driving range and then playing Call of Duty, that's not going to get you to be a great basketball player. Uh, playing a lot of basketball, studying a lot of basketball, working out, that's the stuff that's going to make you a good basketball player, right? Being focused and diligent in that area is what's going to make you great. So again, the same can be applied to a church, I think. You know, if you want your pastor to be great in his understanding of God's word, then he's going to need the support of his actual church so that he can devote himself to the study of God's word. So this is largely why we support local pastors, so that they don't have to be um, sidetracked and all these sorts of things. They can really just devote themselves to the study and the teaching of God's word because we as Christians recognize just how important that is. Um, but your church, likewise, I think needs to be focused and sort of have a direction for the church. You know, like if you want to be the church that's an advocate for life in your community, you know, then put your time and your effort and your money behind pro-life causes and then be focused in that area. You know, if maybe it's helping drug addicts or the homeless, whatever the hap you know, happens to be for your focus, then kind of be singularly focused. It doesn't mean you can't, you know, maybe dabble in other areas, but be focused and solve that issue. You know, but this idea, like it talks about here, they need variety in their giving and diversity in their giving. You know, like if you had $100 and you decide, let's give $1 to 100 causes, that's silly, right? You basically help none of them. All you do is make yourself feel really good. I helped 100 people today. When in reality, you help none of them, basically, at the end of the day. If you would have given $100 to one of those people or organizations, you might actually bring about some positive change. You know, so this is probably terrible advice for churches. Hey, get more diversity, get more variety. 
you know? No. I mean, maybe that's just like, to me, the seeker sensitive mindset of like, just do whatever you can to please the, the most people so that they all come in and they feel good. Okay, but we're not actually doing anything. We're not actually solving anything. We're not actually helping anybody. Pick a direction and go in that direction. Like, man, that's what we need. And, you know, if you had a hundred churches in your community and each church was focused on one thing, then you could affect change in a hundred different areas. But, you know, when you got each church has to be involved in 65 different things and, you know, 90 different programs that they can't really devote themselves to, but they got to have it on the website. So it looks like they're doing, what are you really doing at the end of the day besides just busying yourself or, you know, trying to people please, but you're not actually doing anything. I think that's a terrible mindset for churches to have. Um, but, you know, we've looked at tithing stats in America on this show before. I think it bears um, looking at again, because I think we forget just how dire the actual giving situation is at your local church. So this article here, tithing statistics, it says 5% of churchgoers tithe, <laughs> 5%. Out of 247 million U.S. citizens identifying as Christians, 1.5 million people tithe. Uh, crazy. Now, I don't know what they necessarily consider tithing. We've looked at other tithing stats before where they talk about if you contribute one penny a month, they consider you a tither. So if that's the stat, this is embarrassing. Um, if that's the way they consider tithe, if they're considering it like a legitimate 10% tithe, um, then okay, these numbers could be a little bit, you know, off, but like, just think about maybe if that's your church, you know, and maybe you're in a church of 300 people or you're in a church of a hundred people or whatever it is, right? You're in a church of a hundred people and five of those people give money to the church. Five of those people contribute to the church. Your church is being operated, supported, and maintained by five people. That is shameful <laughs> for the other 285 that show up to essentially just be takers. They're there just to take, take, take week after week. Like, what is God honoring about that? Um, shameful is the only word that comes to my mind. And even still, like, hey, I showed up to be the greeter, right? Back to the younger Christians. They love to volunteer their time. Um, I showed up to be the greeter, right? Somebody pat me on the back. But have you ever given church or money to the church? Did you give any money this month? Nah, no, of course not. I didn't. You know, I had to go buy an overpriced M3 MacBook, right? Because that just came out. And um, shameful. Five of the hundred people are supporting the entire church. Crazy. Um, you know, and it makes me think like, why are so many churches today silent on the important issues that are facing our nation and our world um, or their state and their local, you know, citizenry? Why are they so silent on those? Maybe it's because they don't have the financial support to actually take a stand. You know, not every church can be 
Grace Community Church and go and stand up against the state of California and face down tens of thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars worth of fines every single day. Um, because, you know, they can't afford that, right? So they can't go and fight, which may be the way they want to, because, you know, they just simply, if things get too intense, they, they financially can't afford to do it anymore. Um, so, you know, you might have complaints about your church and what they are, or they aren't doing that you wish they would, but, you know, maybe it deserves a little bit of sort of reflection on you and the members of the church of, Am I actually supporting my pastor well enough and my elders well enough so that they can go and make these stands for whatever the issue happens to be? Um, Because that could be a reason. You know, we don't like to think about money as being the big reason, but, you know, if these pastors and elders and stuff, they have families to support as well, you know, and if they're not getting the support to go and take the fight on these issues, then, you know, maybe it's best that I just don't take the fight um, on these issues. And, we want them to fight. We need pastors to fight. And it goes on in this article. It says the average giving amount per churchgoer is $17 per week. That's $73.67 a month, $884 per year. And then U.S. Christians collectively make $5.2 trillion annually, nearly half the world's total Christian income. So we make $5.2 trillion annual, annually, yet the annual church giving amount is $884. And it does say down here, the majority of churchgoer or church givers, the majority of church givers have zero debt. So it is interesting. Those who are the most financially sound have the, have, you know, are the ones that are giving to the church. Um, Makes sense. But these numbers, like the other numbers, are pitifully shocking because the average income in America is $63,214 a year, which is $5,268 a month, roughly. And like this article says, only 74 of those dollars goes to the church on average. So out of the average American making roughly $5,300 a month, $74 goes to the church. Um, That's $1,317 a week. And only 17 of those dollars goes to the church. You know, uh, not great in my opinion. You know, it's easier to just blame the pastors, right? Um, they preach about money and everyone gets upset. They preach about giving to the church and everyone gets upset, right? Pastors are greedy, whatever happens to be. Um, but you know, these pastors, they have families to support. Um, and again, we want them to go take the bold stand, fight, push back, stand for God. Well, let's get behind them and let's show them that we support them. And you know, where your money is tends to be where your heart is. So um, show them where your heart is by helping them, you know, have the support that they need to go and take these fights. To me, this sounds like a kind of a plank in the eye kind of a moment, right? I want the church to go and, you know, fight these culture wars and have the loudest voice in the room, but I'm not actually going to, you know, put any of my money towards making sure they can go and do what they need to do. Uh, I'm just going to complain about it when they don't, right? 
the American mentality, you know? So I think, I mean, that's kind of our options, right? We're either going to support the church, start to support the church, because we haven't been supporting the church, or we're just going to kind of sit around, wringing our hands, watching American Christianity go down the drain, and just do nothing about it, right? Be sidetracked with our trinkets, um, be focused on the international while the local burns to the ground. I think it's foolish. I think it's silly. Uh, I think it's more about how I feel, how you feel, than about what's actually right or good or what actually affects change. And I just think it's silly. And the thing is, is like younger Christians and stuff, they are giving. Um, they are giving. I just saw this article from Christianity Today. Christians give at record levels to fund Israel relief. Says, we've had literally thousands of new donors giving to our rapid response fund. Um, or And giving to our rapid response fund has never been greater, said Executive Director Carl Moeller. So many of our donors just want to know how to pray and let people over there know that believers in the U.S. are praying and giving to meet their needs. Around half of U.S. evangelicals consider support for Israel and the Jewish people to be an important priority in their charitable behavior. For years, giving to nonprofits that work in the Holy Land has been on the rise. Some rank among the biggest Christian charities in the U.S. Um, I just want Israel to know that giving to their relief efforts is a huge priority for me. And they're like, cool, are you giving on top of what you give to the local church? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm only giving to the Israel Relief Fund because it makes me feel good. Um, now, not that I'm, again, suggesting that Christians don't give charitably around the world. Of course we should. Um, and that we should give to nations in need. And if you want to support Israel, I commend you on that. Um, but that should not come at the expense of or instead of giving to the local church. You know, we should not be placing a higher priority on sort of the supposed needs of those around the world than we do on those in our own local communities. Um, and, you know, if you don't give to the local church because you're not sure of maybe where the money is spent or if your church will spend it effectively, tell them. Go find out where your church is spending the money. Um, you know, but I just, I don't believe that your money is better spent being sent to Israel during wartime than being given to your local church each and every week, each and every month. It might make you feel better, but it isn't better. So why is this important to Christians? Like we always like to, to discuss here. Um, I think it's important because God gave us the local church, you know, and inside that local church, he established the office of elder, pastor, you know, overseer. This is the backbone and the foundation of all gospel preaching and gospel reaching on the earth. This is the foundation. This is what was established. You know, God didn't necessarily give us the international nonprofits, you know, to sort of be the backbone of our faith. They're great. And I'm sure they do wonderful work around the world. That's not the backbone of our faith that we need to be building. We need, you know, to support them. Um, but I think we should be far more focused on supporting 
where we are, where God has placed us, the local. Um, and sure, continue to support them with your time. They certainly need your time. But they need to be supported with our resources as well. Um, you know, I think the only way that revival is coming to this nation, if you want to call it revival, whatever, um, whatever you want to call it, the only way that's coming to our nation is going to be through the local churches, through godly men preaching you know, boldly from their pulpits. That's the way it's coming. It's not going to be by some, you know, top down, change the whole earth, and then that affects your, you know, local church in your neighborhood. No, it's going to be the other way around. Your local church is going to breed into, you know, building Christians, sending out Christians that go and take wherever, right? And I'm not calling that this is like, we're going to take the city for Jesus. I'm just saying, that's where we start. That's where we invest. Anything else that you would want to do, I would implore you to be above and beyond your support for your local church. Um, and, you know, so what should we do about it? I think it's important to Christians. So what should we do about it? Well, I mean, like I talked about this kind of being a plank in the eye type of situation, I would certainly look at your own giving. You know, where are you spending your money? And be honest about where you're spending it and why you're spending it. You know, if you're among the 95%, think about that, 95% that go to church but aren't giving or supporting the local church. Man, change that. If you're part of that 95%, change it. Repent to God uh, for being reluctant to support his church and then figure out what you need to change around or even remove from your life in order to support and to advance God's kingdom in the earth. Um, I personally, I don't believe in a 10% tithe. I don't think um, we're required to give a 10% tithe. Um, I think it's great. If you can shoot for 10, I think that's a good ballpark. If you can do more, do more. Um, if you can't do 10, I think that's fine. You know, I think the Bible teaches that we should be joyful givers. Um, so figure out what you can give joyfully to your local church and um, then give it. Give it faithfully. Um, and then increase over time if you're able to. Increase over time what you can give. And then if you see these other you know, things like war in Israel or whatever it is above and beyond that, give to those as well. I mean, a mark of a Christian is supposed to be generosity. Generosity should be something that marks our life. Um, so be generous, support your local church and, you know, encourage your pastor, support them so that they can be the man God's calling them to be. And then anything above and beyond that, yes, give there as well. But, um, don't forsake the local for the international, you know, I think that's silly. So how should we pray about it? Because Christians should pray about everything. Um, and you know, I think a lot of times people don't give to the church or tithe, whatever you want to call it because they don't think they have enough. Um, it's amazing that in the richest nation on the planet of the earth, how many people actually are struggling financially. But, you know, I think a place to pray would just be pray that God would alleviate those fears because we're called to support our local church and we're called to support our pastors and teachers. Um, we're told to be generous as Christians. So be generous and trust that God will provide. He always provides. Um, he always provides. And pray also, you know, again, that you wouldn't place these sort of worldly or 
maybe even these grandiose and I would say even selfish desires um, about the you know the need for gospel reaching or whatever souls being reached um, on some international stage that you wouldn't place those over impacting the area where God has you. Because again, I'm not suggesting um, that we don't give in those ways, but we need to be focused on taking care of what God's given us and where he's placed us. That's important. Um, And I'm also not suggesting that giving is always easy. Of course it isn't. Um, And I'm not telling you either that, you know, if you haven't tithed and you start tithing, that God's going to somehow open some windfall of financial blessing. I'm not telling you any of that. Um, I'm simply telling you that Christians are instructed to support the church, to support pastors, and to be generous with their money. So obey God and trust God with the outcome. Um, God never disappoints. So um, pray that God would alleviate those fears for you. Um, I'd love to know what you guys think about this. Am I being too harsh? Nikki's not here to uh, soften the edges for me. So let me know if you think I'm off base on this. But um, I just, boy, I just think it's silly. And I think it has a, um, you know, I think we see the results of it in America. You know, faith is dwindling in America, and yet we're worried about, you know, spreading the gospel around the world, which is good. But, you know, it starts with the local, right? Um, Like, where do we raise up missionaries in the church, right? Where do we send out missionaries from the church? Uh, I mean, where do your kids come to hear about God in the church? Like, that's, that's the foundation. That's what God gave us, and that's what we need to take care of and nurture. So love to know what you guys think about this, but we have a couple more stories that I want to get to. Um, And this one comes from catholicvote.org. Don't know what that is, but um, it says, it's titled UK Thought Crime Police Target Women's Silent Prayers Outside Abortion Clinic. Says police officers... Police officers in the United Kingdom targeted a woman for praying silently outside of an abortion clinic in their latest prosecution of thought crimes. On October 18th, West Midlands police officers in Birmingham, England, approached Isabel von Spruce in the legally established buffer zone of an abortion clinic and informed her that she would be fined for her actions outside the clinic. Von Spruce's only actions, however, were standing and praying silently outside of an abortion clinic. <laughs> Birmingham, England. Yes, you can practice your Christian faith inside a state-sanctioned buffer zone in Birmingham, England. But yes, yes, the West is doing fine. Uh, the article goes on and says, The UK government urgently needs to clarify that silent thoughts can never be illegal. (laughs) Think about that. UK needs to urgently clarify that silent thoughts can never be illegal, uh, even if those thoughts are in disagreement with the views of the state. This is the third time I have been treated like a criminal for peacefully, silently, and perceptibly or imperceptibly praying for women who are likely facing one of the worst days of their lives. Isabel Von Spruce said to the Alliance Defending Freedom UK. 
In November 2022, Von Spruce was arrested for praying in a buffer zone where authorities have banned any expression of approval or disapproval of abortion, including through prayer, ADF UK reported. The city council fully acquitted Von Spruce's case in March after no evidence of a crime was found. Two weeks later, she was arrested again for praying silently outside a clinic. She was acquitted once more. Meanwhile, the Birmingham, Birmingham City Council declared itself bankrupt in September and announced that it would cease all non-essential spending. Ah, nothing you can trust more than the, uh, the thoughts and actions of leadership councils who bankrupt entire cities. Uh, so, Isabel Von Spruce arrested three times for thought crimes. Um, calling on the UK's government to clarify that personal thoughts, silent thoughts, can never be illegal. 2023 in the West, huh? But so first off, kudos to Von Spruce for having the conviction to actually continue to show up and pray. She is a hero. Um, Man, what backbone to just show up get arrested. This is, you know, man, amazing. A woman of such strength and character. But I just, man, you read this and it's just prepare for having your thoughts criminalized in the West. And what's interesting is we're kind of seeing a shift, I think. Um, You know, I'm not a sociologist or anything and study these things, but just from my purview, Seems like we're kind of having a shift where people are sort of being woken out of their doldrums um, to sort of realize, in one sense, kind of how aggressive and overbearing and how godless a lot of our governments are, which is good. But at the same time, I think that's going to be part of what brings more of this persecution because, as you know, it's easy when these godless leaders are just, you know, doing whatever they do in the American citizenry or the Western citizenry is just sort of sleepwalking through life with their phone in front of their face and they can't be bothered. But as more and more people start to wake up and see like, hey man, things really aren't going that well. And, you know, there's kind of a lot of perverseness and evil kind of running rampant in our world. I think as people start waking up to that, the persecution is going to have to sort of rise with it in order to try to tamp it down. I think that just is something we're going to see, and we're seeing it in places like England. And it's important to note that the same people that run England are the people that run America. They're the same people that run Canada. In most of these Western nations, the only big difference is we have a constitution, which loosely, very loosely restrains our leaders. Um, But I'm certain that a lot of our leaders would be more than happy to persecute and punish thought crimes that went against, you know, sort of the the state's whatever, uh, accepted thought processes, you know, and you just wait until we get into the the age here in the very near future where, you know, maybe you're forced to have that Neuralink installed, right? We've talked about that before. And now the police can just kind of show up and go, Hey, let me see your thought history. Were you praying that aborted babies, you know, that their lives are spared? Well, that's a thought crime. Let me see your thought history. Um, boy, that sounds great, huh? You know, pretty soon 
you'll legitimately be able to be prosecuted for thinking outside of the liberal orthodoxy, the satanic orthodoxy. Um, But then thirdly, like I kind of mentioned, this city of Birmingham, England is bankrupt. And they only have money for what they said was um, not, or they they would cease all non-essential spending. A bankrupt city that no longer has money for non-essential spending, yet they somehow still seem to place a priority on making sure nobody is standing silently, praying against their city, being a refuge for abortion. Like these are the leaders that Birmingham, England elected to lead and guide them. This is essential spending in Birmingham, England. Do not ruffle the feathers of the baby killers. Awesome. Uh, And now, I'm certainly not looking down on the voters in Birmingham, England. Uh, The people in America have done much the very same thing, right? We've elected the very same people, you know, And we've arrested people in this nation for their Christian thought crimes. We see those videos pop up quite frequently. The one that I'm reminded of now is that uh, pastor in Pennsylvania, right? He showed up to that like gay pride parade or whatever and was arrested within like one minute of showing up. And I mean, as far as bankrupt goes, we're essentially a bankrupt nation, right? $33 trillion in debt. And we're still fighting to advance child sacrifice here. So certainly not looking down my nose at Birmingham, Alabama, or England voters. Um, But the reason that I bring this story up is I can't help but have the feeling that we in America and in the West in general really need to be preparing ourselves and preparing our hearts, preparing our faith that actual persecution might be coming our way. Because, you know, our show kind of talks about a lot here, right? the political class, the sort of satanic left in this nation, they do hate your Christian thoughts. They hate them. Uh, Make no mistake, they hate them. Um, And they hate your Christian acts. Uh, And Because remember, right, your faith in God places an authority higher than the state. And no Marxist government, which ours is largely becoming, and many countries in the West are, no Marxist government has ever approved of having an authority placed higher than them. That's why they hate it. That's why they have to rid themselves of religion because religion says my ultimate authority is God and therefore I'll submit to the government so long as it doesn't interfere with my relationship to God. Well, Marxist governments, they are your God and they will enforce that at the barrel of a gun. But we need more Isabel Vaughn Spruces in England, we need them in this nation. We need them all across the West, having a backbone and a spine to stand up and, you know, be willing to be arrested, be willing to be uncomfortable. Because I think, you know, discomfort is coming for sure. Um, it would be great to get a Richard Von Spruce <laughs> to do something like this. Um, And by that, I just mean it would be nice to get far more men involved and actually standing against sort of the outright um, and celebrated sin in our nation specifically, you know, but with only, what is it, 6% of our nation having a biblical worldview, I guess at the end of the day, you take what you can get. So Isabel Isabel Von Spruce and um, her like, they're heroes, um, they're role models, I think. So 
kudos to Isabel Vaughn Spruce. She could certainly use your prayers if you have time. Pray for her boldness to continue. Um, pray that she just continues to show up, continues, and um, doesn't get scared off, doesn't get worn down. I'm sure that's a lot of what this is, right? Just continue to arrest her. We know we're going to let her go, but just continue to make it hard, make it uncomfortable for her. So pray that she wouldn't become discouraged. Just pray that she would be obedient to God. And, you know, the beautiful thing that being obedient to God in the West today means that you're almost a, a nuisance to those who hate him, which happens to be most of our leadership. So uh, wonderful story from England about Isabel, Isabel von Spruce. She's a hero. But I have one last story here that I want to discuss. And it piqued my interest because we watched and reviewed the movie Cessationist um, last week. And you guys can go and give that episode a listen if you want to hear our thoughts about that movie. Um, but, you know, the crux of the movie is, you know, they're talking about um, kind of the spirit or the miraculous gifts ceasing and, you know, the argument, did they cease? Or do they continue? Um, well, one of the sort of charismatic or continuationist um, men that was featured in that movie was Mike Bickle. And that's Mike Bickle of the International House of Prayer from Kansas City. And uh, I saw this week that Mike Bickle was in the news and not for a good reason. So this article is from the Christian Post. It says, International House of Prayer founder Mike Bickle accused of sexual misconduct by multiple women. It says, International House of Prayer Kansas City founder Mike Bickle has agreed to step away from public ministry as he is investigated for serious allegations, including sexual immorality, that have been made against him by multiple women. Leaders of the charismatic evangelical movement and mission organization based in Kansas City, Missouri, made the revelations of the allegations Sunday at the 11 a.m. service of the ministry's local church expression, Forerunner Church, where Isaac and Morgan Bennett served as lead pastors. Now, um, certainly don't know yet if Mike Bickle is guilty uh, of what he's accused of, but I think it's worth noting that this wasn't brought by like some random person with like a loose connection to Mike Bickle. These allegations were brought by church leadership. So uh, I'm sure they were brought slowly with much um, thought, I would assume. So again, I think that lends at least an air of credibility around the allegations that it wasn't just, you know, Hey, some girl says she met Mike Bickle 15 years ago and accused him of something. You know, this is the leadership of the church. And, you know, I have to assume that they sort of deliberated on this for a while. So I think that's worth noting from this. Um, but the article goes on. Dwayne Roberts, a founding member of the International House of Prayer. Brian Kim, a former uh, House of Prayer executive leadership team member. And Wes Martin a former pastor of Forerunner Church said in a joint statement published on Saturday that they were the ones who first confronted leaders of the ministry with the allegations that span several decades. Um, so again, these are decades spanning allegations against Mike Bickle, not a one-time sort of 
short-lived incident. So pretty serious, uh, it sounds like to me. And it says in the article that Mike Bickle has agreed to step down from preaching and teaching while the investigation is being run, which I think is wise. Um, But the article goes on and says, a few days ago, we made the leadership team of the International House of Prayer in Kansas City aware of serious allegations spanning several decades concerning its founder, Mike Bickle. Without going into details to protect the privacy of the victim's identities, we have found these allegations of clergy sexual abuse by Mike Bickle to be credible and long-standing. They began in their statement. The credibility of these allegations is not based on any one experience or any one victim, but on the collective and corroborating testimony of the experiences of several victims. They allege that before the meeting with I, uh, International House of Prayer leadership team, they attempted to discuss the allegations with Bickle directly in the spirit of Matthew 18, 15 through 17, but they were rebuffed. Bickle also attempted to intimidate, isolate, manipulate, and discredit his victims. So uh, pretty serious allegations against Mike Bickle and obviously a pretty bad look for Mike Bickle if this is true, not just on the sexual assault or sexual misconduct thing, but also on the intimidation piece. If either of those are true or both, not great. Um, And I have one more article from Christianity Today that touches on this story. And it says, uh, the Kansas City Star reported that Bickle preached on false allegations last Sunday. In the sermon, he discussed how per Revelation 12.10, Satan's most effective weapon in the end times is accusation. And he turns whispered innuendos into hostile accusations that destroy lives and relationships, according to sermon notes linked by the Roy's report. Bickle also said that the church is approaching the most glorious and challenging hour in the history with the dragon, Black Horse, breathing on many to accuse and betray each other. So (laughs) apparently right before the leadership team went to the church to tell them of these accusations against Mike Bickle, Mike Bickle preached that false allegations were coming, uh, something his church could expect. So this would either be incredibly prudent of Mike Bickle, or it would be incredibly deceitful and wicked of Mike Bickle. You know, if you have some inclination that these allegations are coming, and you take to the pulpit to preach to your congregation a message that builds sort of a shelter or a protection for you against the potentially truthful allegations, boy, that is a wicked, wicked thing. Uh, So I hope for Mike Bickle's soul that that is not true. You know, if James is right that teachers will be judged more harshly, and that's something you do as a teacher, may God have mercy on his soul. Um, Now, it could just be prudent and, you know, could be truthful, right? These could be false allegations. I don't know. Uh, But not a good look. And uh, one last paragraph, I think, from this article, it says, at International House of Prayer, Bickle emphasizes fasting, prophecy, the spiritual realm in the end times. 
Some consider his ministry a part of the independent charismatics, though he has rejected the new apostolic reformation label. He appeared on Charisma's Strange Report earlier this month to share a prophetic word regarding the war in Israel. And earlier this year, he held a fast for the salvation of Israel, which Bickle says will bring about the second coming. And this ultimately is why I wanted to bring this story up regarding Mike Bickle. You know, in the cessationist movie, Mike Bickle is on there and he explains that, um, I'm kind of paraphrasing, right? But that modern prophecy, or he's explaining what modern prophecy is in that movie. And I think, and I'm assuming if he's giving prophecy in, you know, whatever that article is, that he considers himself a prophet. Uh, But if these allegations are true, and again, Mike Bickle claims to be a prophet, then we, as well as he, uh, we should all be in agreement here. We should be ready to resoundingly proclaim that he is an evil and wicked man and a false prophet if these allegations are true. Because, you know, being a prophet isn't just simply like, hey, I'm going to tell you something that God revealed to me. Um, that's not the biblical sort of identity of a prophet. Um, prophets have to be people of sound doctrinal orthodoxy in the sense that what they prophesy needs to be in line with scripture. Um, Prophets need to be people of moral integrity. And then prophets also need to be 100% accurate in all of their prophecies if they're going to be considered a prophet, right? So, um, and we can go back to, uh, for doctrinal orthodoxy, Um, Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses one through five, it says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord, your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord, your God with all your heart, and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God um, and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt, redeemed you from the house of slavery, to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall purge the evil from among you. So, um, doctrinal orthodoxy, right? If he's prophesying something that even comes true, right? But if it disagrees with what scripture teaches, he's a false prophet. Second um, Peter chapter 2, verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So false prophets exist. They're among us. They have always been among us. Um, but they're evil people, and God will judge swiftly and harshly with them. So if Mike Bickle finds himself in this situation, we need to um, recognize him as such. But then again, that's just the doctrinal orthodoxy piece, right? They need to be people of moral integrity. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 14 and 16, it says, Also among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing, the committing of adultery and walking in falsehood. And they strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom. 
and all her inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I am going to feed them wormwood and make them drink poisonous water. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, pollution has gone forth into all the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. Um, so again, if Mike Bickle is given into sexual misconduct, um, that places him squarely in sort of the false prophet, um, wicked, evil um, column, you know, unfortunately. So uh, certainly hope for, again, his soul's sake, it's not true. But again, we need to be aware of this and recognize it. And Second Peter chapter 2, verse 2 and 3 again says, Many will follow their sensualities. Because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So again, um, people who claim to be prophets and this sort of thing that give in to their sensualities, um, sexual misconduct, and these sorts of things, they're false prophets. They're evil and wicked men. And again, God um, speaks quite harshly towards them. And then also, again, their prophecies need to be 100% accurate. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20 and 22 says, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And then Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 3 through 9. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirit and have seen nothing. O Israel, your prophets have been like foxes among ruins. You have not gone up into the breaches, nor did you build the wall around the house of Israel to stand in the battle of the day of the Lord. They see falsehood and lying divination, who are saying, The Lord declares when the Lord has not sent them. Yet they hope for the fulfillment of their word. Did you not see a false vision and speak a lying divination when you said, The Lord declares, but it is not I who have spoken? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have spoken falsehood and seen a lie, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. So my hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations. They will have no place in the council of my people, nor will they be written down in the register of the house of Israel. Nor will they enter the land of Israel, that you may know that I am the Lord God. So, um, doctrinal orthodoxy, moral integrity, and 100% accuracy in their prophecy. And so, again, I bring up the Mike Bickle thing because he was relevant and recent in my memory. Um, But if he fails any of these tests, any of these three, he is a false prophet. Um, And... Again, kind of the other reason why I'm bringing this up is that, like, America, if you want revival, if that's something that, you know, hey, we need a revival in America and this sort of stuff, we don't get revival in America without rooting out the false and the wicked and the evil and the perverse. Um, And that even goes with those who would claim to be inside our camp. And it probably starts with those who are inside our camp, right? Um, And again, I'm not saying Mike Bickle is that, but I'm saying if these are true, then that would place him squarely there. Um, And we would need to be in the position to acknowledge that, make it uh, clear and 
rid him, um, you know, of whatever positions of authority and, you know, profit status he has until um, he repents and comes clean of that. Now, you know, obviously he doesn't repent and then go back into to leadership position. He's, um, if these allegations are true, he's lost that position. Um, but it doesn't mean we can't bring him back into the fold of, you know, the brotherhood of the faith, but, um, we need to start calling out the wickedness and the false in our own camp first. You know, Christians seem to be really good about pointing the finger at all the, you know, evil outside of the church and ignoring or deflecting a lot from the wickedness that's inside the church. And we can't do that. We need to start from inside the church. Um, but if he fails either of these three tests, right, then we would have to place him squarely in that false prophet camp. Um, and, you know, I would say he has failed them. Um, even in just his discussion, like in the cessationist movie, that even just the talking point from somebody who claims to be a prophet that says that it's okay to get prophecies wrong is failing the doctrinal orthodoxy um, standard because the Bible doesn't ever tell us that it's okay to get prophecy wrong. It tells us quite the opposite, that if you get prophecy wrong, you're a false prophet. So to have somebody say, I'm a prophet, and prophets can get prophecy wrong is failing the doctrinal orthodoxy test. So just in that regard, I would say he's a false prophet. Um, which, and it feels weird to say someone's an evil man, but if you're giving false prophecy, that's the camp you fall in. Um, so I would call him to repentance if, you know, uh, if that's true. So uh, that's my opinion there. But uh, I think, again, that's something important for us to recognize and something we need to be better at in the church today is, you know, not just overlooking all these false. I mean, we've told the story on here before about the pastor that we had um, years ago who uh, came about that he was in adulterous relationships for over a decade, um, but the church loved him. It was a big church, and once the allegations came out, people were saying, "Oh, he's repented. Can he just come back?" No, like we should have a higher standard. We should be holding our our leaders to a higher standard, and you know, helping and supporting them to uphold that standard, and not just you know, ah, oh, we like the guy, so the standard doesn't matter. I mean, that's that's terrible advice and for anybody's soul uh, as a Christian. So we shouldn't be doing that. And Mike Bickle is just the example that I'm using today. It's nothing personal against Mike Bickle. I don't know the man. I've never listened to a thing he's ever said besides the movie. But, you know, and even in that vein, right, he can repent, I believe, and he should repent. Um, but if these allegations are true and all that sort of stuff, the idea of elder, pastor, overseer, he's lost the possibility of ever resuming those roles again. And, you know, America, we've got a really bad habit of sort of, I mean, we idolize everything, but we idolize pastors as well. And to the point where, you know, we allow them to sin, to disqualify themselves, and then just like walk back to the pulpit. And again, that's something they point out in the cessationist movie is that, there's kind of uh there's kind of a history of that happening in the American church and it should not be um if we want to be you know obedient children of God rather than pastoral fanboys we must hold our pastors to a biblical standard they need us to for their own soul's sake they need to be held to a biblical standard and not like some celebrity standard that we just lob on top of the pastor um 
So I certainly hope that these allegations against Mike Bickle aren't true. I hope that he comes to repentance for what I would consider his false teaching anyways on just the idea of prophecy in the modern church. But please pray for him. I think it's important to identify these things and um, have the willingness, and I don't say this in a harsh way, you know, false teacher, evil. Um, it's with, you know, sadness. I'd love to hear a story of Mike Bickle's repentance. And even if it's just, hey, none of the allegations of sexual misconduct are true, but you know what? I was too harsh with the leadership. I was taken off guard. I didn't expect it. Forgive me for that. You know, it's a loving thing that they did to bring these things to my attention. And we need to make sure that this stuff isn't true. I'd love to see that. Um, so again, there's nothing personal against Mike Bickle. I just think we need to highlight these examples and say like, hey, how are we going to deal with this as a church, right? Are we going to have the the spiritual backbone, if you will, to call out the false and the evil, even if they claim our, to be in our own camp? Um, because again, if all you do is run around pointing out the evil outside of the church, but all the people outside the church are looking inwards and going, yeah, you got all the same things in there, you know, so now you're just hypocrites. Well, we don't do ourselves any favors, right? So uh, we need to fix ourselves, our own church, our own, you know, going back to the local, right? Fix the local um, rather than going out and trying to fix the problems with everybody else. You know, we should be an example of what they want to be like um, in the unsaved world. They should see the church and see the purity and the holiness and the love and the um, brotherhood and all those sorts of things and desire it and not, you know, just see a bunch of hypocrites running around pointing the finger at everybody while living the exact same lifestyle. How, how God-honoring is that? So, uh, you know, pray for Mike Bickle and um, just, yeah, I mean, like always, I'm curious what you guys think on this. Am I being too harsh here? Um, I'd love to know. I don't think I am. Uh, it makes sense to me, but uh, open to the discussion. So, man, uh, didn't think I'd go this long just by myself here uh, without Nikki to buffer me, but those stories interested me. Um, you know, we just, I think the American church is, we're living off fumes right now of what we might have once been. I mean, obviously, I probably wasn't old enough. I'm not old enough to know what we once were in our heyday or whatever it was. Um, but it's like we're just living off of fumes now. And we really start, we really need to start addressing these really important issues. You know, church giving, that's a huge issue. Um, and we can't place our love of money over our love of God and supporting God with our finances and these sorts of things. That's important for us to do as Christians. And, um, the Isabel Vaughn spruces to see what it looks like to have spine in the modern age, right? Um, to just go back time and time again, know that persecution's coming and still be willing to go and do what you feel God's calling you to do. That's hugely important for us. I mean, my goodness, how, how weak we've become in the American church simply because of comfort. We don't want to, you know, mess up our comfort. We have our trinkets and our niceties and, you know, life is so easy and so comfortable that we don't really want to rock the boat, but it needs to be rocked or else, you know, the whole thing's going to sink. And then obviously the Mike Bickles of the world and this idea of calling out the false and the, the evil that's within our own camp is of the utmost priority. So love to know what you guys think on these topics. Um, 
didn't have a lot of time for um, listening to you know a lot of sermons and stuff today or this week. So I want to give for my recommended listening the one sermon I did listen to, and uh, also as sort of a um, understanding for you guys of who I'm going to be mentoring under. And um, our recommended listening this week is going to be from my church, Heritage Christian Fellowship, and uh, the main preaching pastor. He's one of the six elders at the church. I'll be mentoring, in a sense, under all six of them, um, but he'll be sort of the lead on that. But his name is Dave Knowles, and this is a sermon he preached last week on Luke chapter 6, verse 37 through 42. And uh, Dave is a a good pastor and um, really love the way that he sort of opens up the word and uh, preaching about us being conduits of grace. Um, Definitely something else we also need to work on. I need to work on immensely. So please pray for me there. But go give Pastor Dave a listen. I think you'll be blessed by it. He's a good preacher. And I'm excited for the opportunity to be discipled and mentored by him over these next few years. And man, I'm just excited to see what God has in store. Um, Life has been a wild ride for these last 38 years, and I'm looking forward to the next 38, the Lord grants them. So that's all we got. Again, we'll be back, not next Saturday, but the following Saturday. I may still have a couple of YouTube shorts, whatever pops into my mind if I got time for them. Um, but the full-on podcast, we're going to take a week off and then um, come back in two weeks, see what the the world has for us. But please be in prayer for me, be in prayer for Nikki. Um, And if you guys have any prayer requests for us, please send me an email. That stuff's down in the show notes. Reach out to us on whatever social media you, you have. And I'd love to be in prayer with you. So that's all I got. God bless.